Good morning. It's great to be with you. If uh, you are a kid um, ready for a gospel project, now is the time to, to go out for that. It was beautiful singing um, He Will Hold Me Fast with you guys. I love that song so much. <clears throat> Let me uh, begin, if I may, this morning by throwing a question out to you guys. Um, a rhetorical question, but one to ponder nonetheless. Are you going to be okay? Are you going to be okay? Are you going to be well, taken care of, and safe? Are you going to be happy, healthy, and provided for? Tomorrow, next week, next year, in five years, in ten years, are you going to be okay? Life is a lot of work, isn't it? It's a lot of work to make sure that we're going to be okay. We go to work week in and week out so that we'll have food on the table, so we'll be okay. We uh, have people we're responsible for, our families, whether we're parents or uh, husbands or wives or we care for our parents. We, we do a lot week in and week out to ensure our families are going to be okay, that the future will be secure. We even participate in our society in different ways, whether it's uh, engaging in politics or uh, your PTA or even our church body like this. We engage to ensure that our community will be okay, that it will have a future that's secure. Have any of you felt anxious over the question, am I going to be okay, recently? Have any of you felt weary from the striving to ensure that you are going to be okay? As we pick up our story in Mark today, we're going to see yet another episode of Jesus and the Pharisees confronting each other. And this question of how do you know you'll be okay, how do you know your future is secure, is kind of the root in the background of this confrontation. That lies beneath it all. So if you don't know me, my name's Josh. Um, I'm one of two Joshes who is a pastoral resident at Church on Mill. Um, and it's, it's an honor to uh, be able to share God's word with you this morning. So we're going to be in Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. Um, that'll be on the screen, or you can turn there. But let's, let's begin our morning by reading from God's word. This is the word of the Lord in Mark 2. <clears throat> One Sabbath, he, Jesus, was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. 
Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and the hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. This is God's word. This story uh, this week is the last in a series of confrontations from Jesus's early ministry. Um, we've seen Jesus cleanse a leper, heal a paralytic, and forgive his sins. We've seen him scandalously sit and eat with tax collectors and sinners. We've seen him ignore the ritual fasts that the Pharisees did. And all the while, the tension has been building between him and the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders and theologians of the day. We've seen the Pharisees go from not too sure what to do with this new Jesus teacher to outright hostile to him here. This is, is where the plot to kill Jesus begins in Mark. And the, the last straw for the Pharisees is this scene about the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the breaking point for them. So why, why is the Sabbath of all these things the last straw for them? Why is that such a big deal? What we're going to see is for the Pharisees and for Jesus, their disagreement over the Sabbath cut to the heart of their different answers to the question, how do we know we're going to be okay? How do we know our future is secure? To flesh that out, we're going to have to fill in some background on the Sabbath to, to see what's at stake in this confrontation in the grain field between Jesus and the Pharisees. So to do that, we're going to look at three stories about bread from the Bible. We'll have three bread stories this morning that will frame the background for us, that'll explain why the Sabbath is the breaking point between the Pharisees and Jesus. So three bread stories. We will begin with our third bread story, in fact, and that's this story we just read about Jesus and his disciples in the grain field. How is this a story about bread? Well, Mark, Mark tells us, Jesus and his disciples are walking through the field. They're traveling, and as they go, apparently with Jesus' blessing, it, Mark says the, the disciples are plucking uh, the heads off the stalks of wheat. What, what they're doing is they're, they're grabbing the head of grain, and they'd rub it between their hands and get the chaff off, and then you'd have a little raw grain to snack on. That, that's their bread right now. They're eating bread on the Sabbath. And this deeply offends the Pharisees. You weren't supposed to do work on the Sabbath, and according to the Pharisees' traditions, that counts as work. And so they come up to Jesus and say, look, we've given you a lot of slack, but what are you letting them do? You're letting them just break the Sabbath, work on the Sabbath. What gives? 
So what's, what's at play here in this bread story? The Pharisees, we have to understand, are half right about something here. And they're right that the Sabbath is a big deal for God's people. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was a big deal. So let, let's, let's go back in time and go to bread story number one. Um, and it's the story of the first Sabbath that God gave his people. And you can, you can read about it in Exodus 16 later. Exodus 16. It's the story of manna from heaven. This is the first bread story. So this, this is back in the Old Testament. This is when God has saved the people from Israel, miraculously freed them from slavery in Egypt. He's taken them from being slaves of Pharaoh and has made them into a nation and said, now I am your king and you are my people. You're no longer in slavery. And if you remember, when God saves the Israel out of Egypt, he brings them into the wilderness. And so when we pick up in Exodus 16, uh, the excitement of getting out of slavery has died down, and now the people are in the desert, and it's hot, and they're tired, and they have no food. And just like me and you, uh, when they get hungry, they start to grumble. And it's not just grumbling because they're hangry, but the people start to get anxious that maybe they've made a terrible mistake in following God out into the wilderness. And they start to think, maybe, you know, we were in slavery in Egypt, but at least we had food to eat. And that Egyptian food sounds pretty good right now. Maybe following God out here was a mistake. Maybe our new Lord isn't so good after all. And so you know the story. What happens next? How does God respond to his people sort of treacherously grumbling against his lordship. He responds by saying, don't worry, you are going to be okay. I am going to provide for you. And what does he do? He gives them bread. Manna falls from heaven, and we're told manna is the, these little sweet flakes of bread, these little frosted flakes that Jesus gives to the people. And it, it falls every day. So every day the people are reminded we are okay because we are God's people and he provides for us. And to memorialize the whole thing, God says, gather the manna six days a week, but on the seventh day, don't gather anything. You are forbidden from getting more bread because, trust me, you will have enough. And so that, that's the beginning of the Jewish practice of the Sabbath. It's a, it's a way of saying, we don't need to work on the seventh day. We will rest on the seventh day because we are God's people and we're going to be okay. We don't have to scrounge. We don't have to be anxious because the Lord will provide for us. So that's where the Pharisees are half right. The Sabbath is a big deal. It's not just one of many laws. It's this symbol of what it means to be God's people. The Sabbath is a big deal. So our first story about bread, manna in the wilderness, helps us understand why Jesus' disciples picking wheat in the grain field exasperated the Pharisees so much. See, just like, well, if you asked a Pharisee, why is the Sabbath such a big deal? He would say, because this is how we know we're going to be okay, because we keep the Sabbath. As long as we hold fast and do the laws, God will be on our side. 
And remember, they are, at this time in history, Israel is in captivity under Rome, and a lot of their countrymen had, had given up on the law and defected to the Roman side, and so the Pharisees are saying, we are the ones who are staying faithful to God. As long as we keep this Sabbath, despite all the mess in the world around us, God will keep us. He will make sure we're okay. And so for you, Jesus, to come and teach people that they don't need to do that is messing everything up. This is a sign between us and God. The Sabbath, understand, was something for them to cling to, something to do, to say they were going to be okay. Just like many of the Old Testament laws, by Jesus' day, the Pharisees had written all these bonus laws expounding on the Sabbath, trying to define exactly in every case they could imagine what it meant to work and not work on the Sabbath. So they had all these extra rules, like you couldn't walk a certain distance on the Sabbath or that would count as work. You couldn't write more than one letter or that would count as work. If you had a headache, you couldn't take an Advil, that counted as work. There were all these extra laws, including plucking heads of grain. So they're saying, look, they're breaking our rules. Don't you know how big of a deal that is, Jesus? Have you noticed that we too get the most exasperated about things we imagine that we're the experts of? The Pharisees had studied and studied this. They had written long guides on keeping the Sabbath. They'd written the book on this thing. The things we feel like we're an expert of are the things we get the most zealous about. Maybe for you, that looks, I would imagine, not like keeping Sabbath laws, but probably something like holding fast maybe to strong political convictions and and starting to feel the the zeal that it's those people on the other side of the aisle who are holding us back from the prosperity I know we could be getting. Or, Or in another case, maybe you're a parent and you have a wonderful plan for your kids' lives involving getting them into the right school and having the right plan for them, and they just do not see the program the way you do, and it's exasperating because don't you know what I've invested in your future? If you will just follow the agenda, we'll be okay. I felt very convicted reading this passage as somebody, I'm going to school to study theology, and it can be so easy for me to fall into the trap of thinking, if I study God's word the right way, if I check the right theological boxes, if I say the right things and and hold to the right positions and align myself with the right theologians, then I'll be okay. See, whatever it is, we, like the Pharisees, have things we want to do to grasp, to manufacture for ourselves, to say, I can say, things are going to be okay. And we see those by the things we get zealous about, like the Pharisees. We each have our own things we want to do in order to secure our future. So how does Jesus respond? As we've come to expect from Jesus' ministry, he responds with an indirect answer of a story that we're not quite sure how it's an answer to the question. But the story he talks about with David is our second bread story. So, recap so far. Our first bread story is manna in the wilderness. Third was Jesus in the grain field, and we're filling in this second one about David. The disciples ask, 
Jesus, how come you're letting your disciples pick grain? And Jesus says, well, have you read about David? What's that got to do with it? Think of it this way. The, disciple, or the Pharisees are saying, hey, remember manna in the wilderness? There's one day of the week you're not supposed to get bread. Why are you letting your disciples obtain their grain on the one day they're not supposed to do it? And Jesus says, well, you've forgotten. There's another bread story about David. This story's about King David. If you don't know who King David is, he is the most important king in Israel's history. He's one that God said was a man after his own heart and promised to establish David's kingdom eternally. We're going to see later in Mark, Jesus is the one who fulfills David's kingdom, sort of like we read about in Daniel 7 today. Jesus is the one who receives God's kingdom. But this story Jesus tells about David and the bread is from 1 Samuel 21. It's about King David, but it's about King David before King David was King David, back when he was just David. At this point in the story, David had been anointed king, meaning God had picked him and said, you are going to be the king, but he had not come to the throne yet. And there was another king on the throne named King Saul, and King Saul kind of liked being the king and uh, didn't really want David to be the king. So in those days, if you were a king and you didn't want somebody else to be king, you would try to kill them. And so David is on the run in 1 Samuel 21, running from uh, King Saul. And he's going rogue in the wilderness, running from him, and he's hungry and he needs bread. He's going to meet up with some of his supporters, but he has no food. And so the story that Jesus tells, he, he comes to uh, the tabernacle, the place of worship, and he goes to the priests and says, priests, I need some bread. And the priests say, well, that's complicated. The only bread we have is the sacred bread. See, in, in, in the tabernacle, uh, the priests were supposed to make this bread that was consecrated. It was, you can read about that in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the laws. Uh, the, the bread was actually a memorial of the manna in the wilderness, and it was devoted to the priests. It was a symbol of saying, God will take care of his priests. So only the priests were allowed to eat it. But David says, great, I'll take it. Uh, even though by the law, only the priests were supposed to eat it. But Jesus, citing this story, he seems to say, David had the authority to do that. As the anointed king, David had the authority to take the priestly bread. And not only take it, but give it to his followers. David had the authority to say, I know what this bread's for. It's for me and my people. I will provide it to them. So do you see the analogy? David takes bread and he has the authority to give it to his followers. Jesus has the authority to give grain to his disciples. Jesus is making an audacious claim. He's not saying the Sabbath doesn't matter or that it's just kind of a fuddy-duddy law in general. He's saying, I'm the king. I am King David. In fact, what he literally says is, I am the son of man, which again, as we read from Daniel 7 today, means the kingdom has been given to him. He's the anointed king. Even though he's not up on the throne yet, he has the authority to say what the Sabbath is for. This is how he puts it. We'll read again in verses 27 and 28. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord 
even of the Sabbath. Notice when Jesus encounters people who challenge him, he doesn't take the bait on all the red herrings about the little intricacies of the law. He doesn't go there with the Pharisees. He sidesteps all the red herrings and says, the root of the issue, Pharisees, is you don't know who I am. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. So friends, this this passage is not so much about how rightly to observe the Sabbath. There are other passages in the Bible that tell us about this. But what this is about is what the Sabbath means. And as we've said, the Sabbath means resting in, being provided for by God's kingly rule. God's people observe the Sabbath because they have confidence that he provides for them. So what better picture of that than Jesus' disciples resting on the Sabbath by taking the grain Jesus gives to them? So to summarize, our first story about bread told us the Sabbath is important. But this second one about David tells us what the Sabbath rest means. The Sabbath rest, the blessing of resting from the Sabbath, only comes from the Sabbath Lord. The Sabbath rest only comes from the Sabbath Lord. The Sabbath was never about creating all these nitpicky laws to become a burden. It's about resting under the care of the Lord who loves his people. The Lord who ensures his people are going to be okay. These two stories explain bread story number three, Jesus in the grain field. So what about the Pharisees? How did they go from rightly understanding the Sabbath was a big deal to so wrongly missing the fact that the Sabbath Lord gives the Sabbath rest. We were talking about this in my GC last night, and one sister put it really well. She said, the Sabbath was supposed to be a time to rest in God's work, but the Pharisees had made it about their work. Remember what we talked about. We all have a thing we want to do to manufacture our own rest to ensure for ourselves that we'll be okay. But what was the result of that for the Pharisees? Did that work? That's this picture Mark is painting of the Pharisees. They were not resting, they were miserable. They were burdened by these long lists of rules. They were burdened by their own standards. And not just that, the result is they were bitter people trying to take God's laws without knowing and loving God as Lord only creates a burden for us, and it only makes us bitter. Bitter because we can't manufacture our own rest, and no one else will live up to the standards we create for ourselves. It creates this burden and this bitterness, and ultimately, it results in a blindness. The Pharisees were blind. The Lord that they would have said they're on his side, the Lord they claim to be working for is standing in front of them and they do not recognize him. They can't see him. Excuse me. They had zeal, but in the end it was only zeal for themselves. 
And before we get too fired up bashing on the Pharisees, let's recall the things we do, the things we're zealous about. It's dangerously easy for us to become so convinced that we're the good guys, to become so self-assured that we have the right perspective, that we're on the right side of history, that we're the sensible ones. It becomes so easy to do that that we feel justified in whatever emotion comes up. I feel angry, I'm one of the good guys, it must be righteous anger. I'm zealous, I'm one of the good guys, it must be righteous zeal. In other words, the Pharisees' problem is not that they were Jewish, it's that they were sinners, like you and me. And so while the Sabbath law is probably not the thing that keeps you up at night, it's something. Each of us has some tendency to create a list of rules that justifies ourself. And as we make those standards, we are in such a danger of becoming bitter that no one else lives up to our rules, right? If only everyone was as open-minded and compassionate as me. If people would just hold fast to the tried and true traditions like I do. If people were as moral as me, if people were as responsible as me, if people were as theologically orthodox as me, if people would just listen to me because I'm the expert. You see how it, it goes on and on. We are in the same danger of becoming burdened, bitter, and blind. Burdened by our self-made rules, bitter about how no one lives up to our standards, and blind to how futile the whole thing is. It's futile because, friends, Jesus' teaching makes it clear that that's no way to live. It's futile because we can't manufacture the blessing for ourselves. We can't ensure that we're going to be okay. It was never ours to give. But this isn't bad news, it's good news. It's good news, and that, friends, church, I pray we'd feel this in our bones. It's good news because God gives rest. What we want to manufacture for ourselves is what God gifts us. God has, in Jesus' word, not created his rest to be a burden to us. Man was not made for the Sabbath. God has created his rest for your good. Man, the Sabbath was made for man. Jesus, the Son of Man, says, Come under my wing, reach out, and take the bread I have given you. That's the love of Jesus. Sabbath rest only comes from the Sabbath Lord. Think of what a beautiful picture this is. The disciples walking with Jesus, and Jesus saying, It's the Sabbath, rest. Reach out and take the bread. Take the grains I give you. The Sabbath rest only comes from the Sabbath Lord. No one was resting or safer or more secure than the disciples in the presence of Jesus that day. Don't flout his kindness by trying to earn it. After the scene in the grain field, Mark doesn't really tell us what happens immediately after. In his punchy style, Mark just leaves it. But we move forward into this next scene in the synagogue. It seems like the Pharisees retreated back to the synagogue, the place of worship. And, and 
As we move into Mark 3, 1 through 6, Jesus and his disciples go to the synagogue to attend the worship service this same Sabbath day. Understand that this scene in the synagogue isn't going to add anything new to the story. It's just going to be the outworking of what we've already talked about. The scene in the grain field that left us with this kind of tension between two ways of doing the Sabbath, two ways of answering the question, how are we going to be okay? Is it option A with the Sabbath PhDs, the Pharisees, who say if we keep all the rules, if we do everything right, then we can ensure that we're okay? Or is it option B, the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus who says, come under my wing and take the grain? The scene in the synagogue makes this clear. As they're coming in, the the Pharisees, what are they doing in the synagogue? Are they caring for God's people? Are they devoting the Sabbath to be a day of rest and prayer? No, they're huddled in the corner, scheming. Scheming apparently does not count as work on the Sabbath. And this is really awful. They see a man with a a disability, this man with a withered hand, meaning it, it's uh, either by a birth defect or some injury, this man can't use his hand. And the Pharisees think, we've been around the block with this Jesus guy. He heals people. That's in an open shut case. He weaseled his way out with the grain, but if he heals, we've got him. It says they're scheming, Mark tells us, so that they can bring charges against him. That's their state of mind on the Sabbath. How can we exploit somebody to bring charges against Jesus? That's where Jesus confronts them in kind of the climax of this story. Jesus points this out head on. So he he calls this man with the withered hand to the middle of the room, which is probably not what that guy wanted to do um, in that situation, but he comes into the middle of the room with Jesus All eyes are on Jesus, and he looks at the Pharisees and says this to them in verse 4. He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save or to kill? And it's not a hypothetical question. It's not an abstract question. It's a very pointed question. Jesus is pointing at himself and he's pointing at them. Is it better, is it, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? He says this question about who has the right approach to the Sabbath is not a question. If the Sabbath is all about resting under God's kingly care, which one of us is giving a, a better image of God's character? The schemers? The ones burdened by their laws, bitter about how uh, no one lives up, the ones exploiting, the ones plotting to kill, or the one giving bread on the Sabbath day, the one giving rest. Which Lord do you want to follow? And so they are silent. Mark tells us Jesus looks them over with Anger. Anger and grief. Why? Mark says because of the hardness of their hearts. You could also translate that because of their stubbornness, their obstinance. 
the picture is they are not even listening to Jesus. The Pharisees had made up their minds before Jesus walked in. They're in the, in the huddle, scheming. They were not even listening. They refused to entertain the idea that Jesus might be right because in their minds, they were the good guys. They were convinced of that. And that makes Jesus angry and it grieves him. Compare Jesus' righteous anger with the unrighteous anger at the beginning of the story the Pharisees had. Friends, the only people to whom God's rest and relief will never come, the only people who will not be okay are the ones who refuse Jesus like this. There is a free offer of rest, but if we are so committed to our own programs, we will not get it. No one looking at Jesus' anger and grief No one hates your sin more than Jesus. No one is more deeply offended when you do evil or break God's laws than Jesus. And no one longs for you to repent more than Jesus. No one is more passionate to see you restored than Jesus. Jesus is grieved He didn't come to the synagogue just to slam dunk on the Pharisees. Jesus' grief tells us Jesus would have been overjoyed to see them come around, but they refused. The bottom line, the Pharisees were so committed to securing their own future, to taking it into their own hands, that their mind could not be changed. They had sold their souls to their program of earning God's blessing. They were so convinced that they were the good guys that when the urge to plot and kill Jesus came into their heads, that was justified because we're the good guys. We're on God's side. That's the blindness of their state. The Lord of the Sabbath was in front of them and their bitterness was ultimately aimed at God. This should frighten us. Not a despairing fear, but a sober fear. When we say we are born sinners, part of what that means is our sin has access to our brains. Friends, we can rationalize anything to justify ourselves. History has shown that repeatedly. I'm sure your own history has shown that repeatedly. We can rationalize There's nothing inherently different about you and me from the Pharisees. I think a danger of this message, it could turn into a crushing message, leaving us just paranoid about, am I being a Pharisee in any given moment? Could I be fooling myself? Maybe I'm blind. But let's ask a couple questions. Do you have an abiding bitterness or anger in your heart? Chances are, it's not a righteous grudge you're holding. It's not a justified bitterness you feel. Or, or, or on the other hand, do you feel this anxiety that life is one snap string away from bottoming out at any moment? That, do, do you feel that if I just 
make one little error, I'm out of God's good graces? Do you feel, I need to be so anxious to keep all the rules, to check all the right boxes, or I'm out? Abiding bitterness and abiding anxiety about laws, neither of those are the picture of resting in God's care, resting in his provision, resting in his grace. Abiding bitterness and abiding anxiety about rules are symptoms that we may have the the condition the Pharisees had. So if that's you today, don't harden your heart. Do not be stubborn. Don't ignore it. Or say, surely that's not me. I'm one of the good guys. Friends, church, from all your attempts to manufacture your own blessing and your own rest, church, from all your attempts to justify yourself, repent. And by repent, I mean turn to the open hand of the Lord who asks that you resign control, but in exchange receive rest and blessing. Reach out to the open hand of the Lord. That's the picture Mark gives us. To to bring it back, what do we do with the healing of the man in the synagogue? Why, Why does Mark give us so many details about this? We have these stories about bread What does the man with the withered hand have to do with it? In in the first place, remember all of Jesus' healings and miracles serve to authenticate, to, to vindicate and validate everything he said. If there was any question that he was the Sabbath Lord, that he was the one speaking on behalf of God, it is clear when he, by the very word of his mouth, restores a man's powerless hand. The power of God vindicates Jesus, proves that he is bona fide, he is who he says he is. But at another level, I think Mark has given us a picture of faith with this man with the withered hand. Think of it this way. We began with our our bread story in the grain field about Jesus with his disciples saying, reach out and take the bread I have given you. But friends, each of us comes like this man in the synagogue, needy but incapable of reaching out, incapable of grasping. We are sinners, burdened by our rules that we make, burdened by our attempts to justify ourselves, weary from them. We come bitter as a result, angry at God that we can't do what only he can do for ourselves, that no one else lives up to our standards, and we come blind, blind to our own desperate need. So when Jesus calls to us, reach out your hand, he gives not only the invitation, but also the power to respond, the capability to respond. Just as he gave the man with the withered hand the capability to reach out when he says, stretch out your hand. Only the Sabbath Lord can give Sabbath rest. Only with Jesus will you be okay. 
Only with him can you experience a rest and a security and a love that you can really place your hope in that will make sure you're okay tomorrow, next week, a year from now, an eternity from now. Without him, all our vain attempts that might appear to work out for a little bit, without him, all of them turn into vain striving. Everything else we put our hope in someday will burden us, will embitter us, and will blind us. So when you hear this word today, don't harden your heart. Don't be callous and flout his love. Place your confidence in Jesus and reach out to him. In a moment, Pastor Tad is going to lead us to take the Lord's Supper. For those of us who are Christians, see this as an opportunity. See this supper as an opportunity to reach out and take the bread, the rest that the Lord has provided you. See this as an opportunity to remember that the same gospel you put your trust in the first day you believed is the same gospel that you need today. That's part of the picture of the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. That's part of Jesus saying, pray in this way, Lord, give us this day our daily bread, because we don't graduate from needing God's rest. God doesn't give us a little boost and then we do it ourselves. No, we remain needy of the bread and the rest that only God can give. Christian, you are safe and secure not because of your wisdom, not because of your morality or your law-keeping or your savviness, not because of anything you have attained. You are safe, you are secure, and you are loved because God has provided for you. You are going to be okay because in Christ, the Lord has brought you into his rest. You are safe with the king who paid for your life. If you're not a Christian, this supper is not yet for you. Instead, take this time to consider, what does it mean that Jesus says, stretch out your hand? What does it mean that Jesus asks you to resign all the rules that burden you, to give up and be freed from the bitterness that plagues you? Friends, when we talk about being a Christian, we mean that there is rest. There is an assurance that you can be okay today, tomorrow, for eternity. So if you're not a believer today, do not harden your heart against this word, but consider what does it mean for Jesus to call you to stretch out your hand? Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for the rest that you give us. We pray that you would protect us from becoming burdened by the laws we make for ourselves or bitter from our own striving. Father, we pray that we would take this picture to heart of Jesus' disciples resting in Jesus' care, taking the bread that he gives. Lord, we pray that as a church we would be like those disciples, answered for only by our Savior explicable only in terms of our Savior who gives us our daily bread. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.